This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film vs. Film. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Film vs. Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other, which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. In this episode, we're looking at two police stories set in the hectic hustle and bustle of the city. One film stars Jamie Lee Curtis as a rookie cop who is being gaslit by a psychopath, and the other stars a slew of Hollywood leading men in the story of a crooked cop pitted against a cop pretending to be a criminal. This week, we're looking at Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel versus Martin Scorsese's The Departed. I'm multiple actor, award-winning filmmaker Craig Anderson, and as always, I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile and ANU law graduate who loves cranberry juice because, as we all know, <laughs> it's a natural diuretic. It's Herschel Isaacs. Hi, guys. I'm looking forward to diving into the, into the cop movie genre. We're also joined by Herschel's identical twin brother, Adullard, who was recruited by an elite team of Luddites to go undercover at the University of Sydney as the associate professor, it's Bruce Isaacs. That is how I feel a lot of the time because, especially coming from the western suburbs, coming to the University of Sydney, everyone just felt really smart and, mm. and uh, sophisticated. So I often do feel like a bit of a, a stranger in a strange land. There you go, it's exposed, it's a sham. <laughs> Bruce Isaac hey, as long is as they keep sending smart. me a paycheck once a fortnight. <laughs> now, we grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney on the beautiful plains of the Darug people. And this is the segment of the podcast where we like to talk about growing up and loving movies. And today, I want to give a shout out to the vibe-setting marketing tools that got audiences foaming at the mouths and bopping for months around the release of a movie. Yes, I'm talking about the songs from the movies that became smash hits throughout our childhood. Now, let me give you an example. Footloose, the song. Oh, yeah. yeah. Footloose was amazing. Well, that movie is actually an excellent movie. It's a great movie. I yeah. want to evoke the memory of how exciting it was to watch video hits or rage yeah. and see a new movie coming out, but to hear the music from it. But also to watch the music video that had cut stuff in from the movie. That was you the know? best. So for yeah. me, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, when we were all eagerly awaiting Terminator 2, yeah, Judgment Terminator Day, 2, Guns and, Roses. and then Guns N' Roses uh, had the song coming out, and they had cut in the famous moments of like, when he's carrying the, the shotgun with the roses. Well, that right? scene, when he breaks through the, the, mm. into the corridor, and he drops the roses, yeah. pulls out the gun, and that's the first time we see Schwarzenegger flip the gun around. Gun, yeah. And we were just going, what? Yeah. But playing to, to Axel Rose but and Slash. Axel Rose and Slash are in the video. Yeah. So suddenly Axel Rose and Arnie are in the frame. And I love that crossing over, yeah. right? Our superstars like Axel Rose and Slash come into the world of cinema with Arnold. 
And I thought that was a fantastic a whole bubble that, of that, excitement with a movie coming. Armageddon. Um, remember, there was a lot <laughs> the of... Steve Tyler. Steve Tyler. Oh, man, I love um, that song. Kokomo in Cocktail Crossover. Kokomo. I mean, I don't know why everyone makes fun of Kokomo. I, I think it's a classic Beach Boys song. <laughs> Interestingly, though, um, the Beach Boys didn't... <laughs> Brian John Wilson. Stamos. Oh, John Stamos. <laughs> That's why he watched Kokomo. But, um, you know, Brian Wilson didn't write that song. So, interestingly, the Beach wow. Boys perform it. And I always thought it had to be a Brian Wilson number. Did John Stamos um, write it? <laughs> <laughs> Just for people who don't know, John Stamos was the guy from Full House. Uncle Jesse. The, the hunk, Uncle Jesse from yeah, Full yeah. House. But he's, but he's, he's, playing, he's a professional playing, drummer. But he's yeah. playing drums in the, in the thing. And <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty yeah. damn cool. Yeah. Okay, here's another one. Streets of Philadelphia. Oh, are you yeah, kidding? Yeah, that that defines... I used to... When I was going through a period of melancholy, <laughs> <laughs> I used to just watch that video over and over. Okay, about the same time, here's one that'll lift go you up. The ninja rap from the Ninja Turtles. Oh, is, that, is that Vanilla Ice? Vanilla Ice. Yeah, Vanilla Ice. Or I so think that sad. might have been the second film because the first one had Spin. Okay, Secret of the Ooze was Ice. Yes. Yeah. First one was. You, but the, um, but the hey, did Spin That Wheel by yeah. Technotronic oh. or one of those groups. High, Actually, high that, Craig, that really brings back a memory. The, the Turtles movies coming out was a big thing for our lives yes. because yeah. we were the massive um, Turtles fans and everybody we knew basically was. Anyone into comics or anything was huge into Turtles. And the accompanying soundtrack was a huge part of the marketing yeah. for those movies. Yeah. One I want to throw to, over to you two, but you're probably going to think this is a bit nuts. But um, when, when uh, the, the, with my, my family, that when we were going to Bathurst and then from there to Coonabarabra, and we listened to the radio, Smooth, okay? Smooth FM? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love okay, it. Smooth FM is good. The stuff. best. Maria McKee. I think it's called Show Me Heaven. Oh, yeah. Show Days of Thunder. Yes. yes. Days of Thunder. That song. You that was in my head any Tom Cruise movie from the late 80s through the 90s. And there was like a song associated with that that accompanied or even prefigured the movie. With Marie, the Maria McKee song, the reason it's so important for me is that over a two-year period, I, I was probably in love with like three people at school, all right? And the Maria McKee high song. Yeah, this is high school. Okay. The Maria McKee song. That was my romantic accompaniment. So in my head, the world <laughs> I created, God. the soundtrack of the world no, I created. she's got a montage <laughs> running with Maria McKee No, in but the then when, when it came out in Days of Thunder, and you know, Days of Thunder... It's like a uh, naked gun montage. Yeah. But it's, it's I mean, when you watch Days of Thunder now, it's, it's absolutely nuts. Um, two I've got. Secret Garden by uh, Jerry Bruce Maguire. Jerry oh, Maguire. Yes, yes, of and course. Because that song was not written for... Because I remember that year mm. when the Oscars came and Springsteen didn't win because that's just one of the greatest Springsteen songs. And I just thought, how did this dude not win an Oscar for Secret Garden, which is a beautiful song, but yet that had been written for a previous album. Right. So I, I didn't know that at the time. And the other one, uh, Take My Breath Away, Berlin for oh, Top Gun. Yes, yeah. Remember the yes. montage of Kelly McGillis? Well, that's the thing about these songs. You, it was like an excellent marketing ploy. Yeah. The, the the musician benefited and the film benefited to be tied in, but also having radio play to remind you of that because yeah. it's sort of implanted in our heads. When we think of those film clips, we hear that music, we see those movies. We don't just see the singer. Okay, well, take my breath away. That is only Top Gun. I mean, yeah. I, what else did Berlin okay. do, number well, one? He, imagine this one. This was number one for ages. The Shoop Shoop song. <laughs> right? And also, can I say, that All movie, I can think of is Christina Ricci and... and I know. Winona Ryder. Yeah, Winona Ryder. And the thing is, that movie... And the wonderful Bob Hoskins. ...was a relative success, but didn't become a, a landmark movie. But the Shoop Shoop song was number mm. one. Yeah. yeah, but that's Cher's song. Here's a, I'm just going to say the song, you say the movie, you're yeah. straight away. Unchained Melody. 
Ghost. Ghost. Yeah, yeah. Just watched right? Ghost two months ago. Gee, that. I mean, that that is. That also took an old song back to number one in the charts, like amazing? in the. And interestingly, about Unchained Melody, they did a like not a remix, but they changed a version of it, or just they drummed down all the vocals in that and played it about in three parts of the movie. So they play mm, yeah. the song when they're doing the pottery scene, yeah. but in the key love sequences. They play the, the music in the mm, background, yeah. and it's so effective. Can I introduce the king yeah. of tying in music with film yeah. or television, Will Smith? <laughs> with <laughs> first of all, smashes out of the park with his TV show. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then smashes out the Oscars. <laughs> but then, <laughs> and then smashes Chris Rock out <laughs> of the park. How big was Men in Black? Uh, uh, oh, what about the West? No, the other the one was a bigger one than that. Every, what, wait. What's everything I do? Oh, everything I do, I do it for you. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh my God. Right. Brian, okay, that for me is number, that's the biggest of all. The interesting story that about that one. So Brian Adams nearly lost the gig because um, who's Kevin Costner was had a big say in the production, yeah. and Kevin Costner wanted Adams to play with original instruments in the video clip. Like a lute. And Brian Adams said <laughs> he wanted Brian Adams on no. a lute. So Brian Adams goes, "I'm gonna look, you know, I'm gonna look like a dickhead because I'm a rock star. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you want me to stand there with like a, a stick in my hand." And so he said, I won't do that. And so they compromised and they put him in a strange setting. Yeah. Like in the forest, <laughs> but playing with a, a proper it, it lead looks guitar. Very, it's a strange um, video clip, but I remember being in love with that song. And it was everywhere for at least eight weeks. Lady Marmalade? Yes. From Moulin Rouge. From Moulin Rouge. Rouge. That was great. Um, but we just want to shout out to all the music supervisors because that's yeah. someone's job on a movie is to hunt down those tracks and to get the licenses and getting licenses for music. Um, and that, I should differentiate that we're not just talking about scores here. We're not Scores is for another discussion, the best soundtrack scores. But this is a thing that used to happen and there used to be compilations in the 80s and 90s where you'd buy a CD of the top movie music. Well, we've yeah. talked about also uh, like Pulp Fiction but also buying albums that are just full of songs that yeah. now a director has curated Big saying, chill. have a listen to these Pop songs. Oh, yeah. Forrest Gump yeah. was a legendary album. Um, what's the, the album was, like in my opinion, now stands so much better than the movie. But it was also a way that we learned about songs from history that we hadn't heard before because, because that, the movies were set then. Especially, yeah, songs tied to movements, issue movements, civil rights movement, that sort of thing. Music opens you up to a lot of those ideas, right? Yeah. So that's really cool. Uh, Spike Lee with hip-hop, uh, rap, jazz, like from Do The Right Thing. There's a whole thing where Samuel Jackson does his whole litany of the great ja- the great artists, mm. you know, like, and he goes, like, Seduke and all these things. Like, So I would never have encountered that stuff if not through cinema. <laughs> Do you guys know that Radiohead were commissioned to write the uh, song for um, the one that was Spectre. ended up doing by, yeah, Billy yeah, Eilish. Spectre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you guys heard the Radiohead Yeah, I've song? heard the radio. It's I love it. It's just masterful. Yeah, because... Tom, and apparently it was like too dark. Yeah, Tom, Tom York lost it over it because basically they were contracted already. Yeah. And when they played it, they said, it's well, too get dark this. for a Bond This song. has been a common thing for the Bond movies. They contract, they approach lots of famous artists, yeah. about five, and then pick the best one. But they don't tell them all that they're all up That's for the so new Bond crap, film. Huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the there's a whole bunch of, like, there's a Johnny Cash. Thunderball, your fiery breath can burn the coldest man. And who is going to suffer from the power in your Listen, we haven't talked about the fact that these songs also go on to, uh, are tied in so heavily that they become Oscar-nominated things and it's part of the Oscars, best yeah. original song from part a of the movie. marketing vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. All the way back, right? All of Disney One of my favourite songs was from a Bob Hope movie called Buttons and Bows. The movie's called Power Face. But I love that song in it. And yeah. then I looked it up and I, uh, like I'd bought an album, uh, a record vinyl that was called 
the best Oscar-winning songs. And it just had every song that had been released that won yeah. the Oscar. And it was great because that won 1949. So I'm thinking of songs that go all the way back. Mm. But it still it still happens. Even though the marketing, it isn't important and it doesn't supplant in our heads and burn that movie and song into mm. our brains anymore. There's still... The most recent one I can think of that really was big was Lady Gaga's Shallow, which was from the... That was an... That's, you're right. that's the best born. example, yes. yeah. right? I also want to shout out to um, the, the song from Sans the Lambs, Q Lazarus, Goodbye oh, Horses. Uh, we all love the song. Do you know that's Byron's favourite song when he was like four? <laughs> I used to play it, I used to do the dance thing as well. So, he, okay. He, <laughs> I can't even make a joke out of that. Um, but that also is used by... Um, Who's the director? Jonathan Demme. In Married to the Mob, the movie he, he did he before that. that same yes, song. It's playing in the kitchen as Michelle Pfeiffer's cooking something. And it's very low in the mix. But yeah. it's the first time that he uses that song because he must love it as yeah. well. What's, but what, blew, so, what blows my mind from? is that it sort of now puts both those films in the same universe. <laughs> and I'd love to think of Buffalo Bill yeah. downstairs while uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's upstairs. <laughs> just doing his, I'd love doing to the, you know. Buffalo, Buffalo Bill's doing his dance. Michelle, yeah. And the camera's just moving up and yeah. down, up and down. <laughs> She's cooking in the kitchen. I want to see Buffalo Bill versus Matthew Modine in a fight. Who comes out on top of that? Forget about it. Modine's dead. Well, there it is. We just want to shout out to all the pop songs that ended up in movies and became awesome tie-ins and got implanted in our brains and uh, just forever attached to those movies now. It's, yeah. it's a thing that doesn't happen as often nowadays, but it used to be a huge thing in the 80s and 90s. Any shout-outs this week? Yes, I do. I have a shout-out to my lovely, honest student, Victoria Bolt, who graduated on... Uh, it was Wednesday. Anyway, Victoria did a um, Insta a, a TikTok series. She's New Zealand, I should say. Mm -hmm. She sent me some of the links. That awesome. It went viral, and now she's making a show with Warner Brothers based on the TikTok wow, series. Wow, good for I just her. Want to say What's the series about? What's it called? It's um, Noob, and it's. I mean, the, it's short little vignettes in two parts, mm. but it's it's set in like a certain era, early 2000s. So a lot of it is wow. like these New Zealanders. These, uh, so I'll give you one little thing. For example, a guy uh, is trying to make a, a mix CD for his girlfriend, and this is in the era of LimeWire. So he downloads <laughs> something from LimeWire, and a thing flashes on his screen, the FBI are coming up to you. <laughs> so, but he's a very charming guy. He's like out of like, I don't know, like a New Zealand a thick accent. He's yeah. a lovely guy. Chucks his computer out the window, and it smashes on the lawn. And then his brother comes in. His brother's like a real academic sort of character. And they start talking about like how he's trying to make a mixtape, but the FBI is after him. And, it's, and he, at one point, he, he says, um, bro, they're going to take me to Guatemala Bay. <laughs> and I just, that line, right, I was crying with laughter. Good work, Victoria, and good yeah. work. Check out Noob on TikTok. Noob on TikTok, yeah, it was great. All right, as always, today's episode will feature spoilers for both films, so this is your last chance to watch it before we give it all away. However, if other films pop up along the way, we'll do our best not to spoil them. Let's get into it. Take one. Up first on today's show is Blue Steel from 1989. Oscar-winning filmmaker Catherine Bigelow had made two feature films during the 1980s and her second movie, 1987's Near Dark, was a genre-bending vampire film starring Bill Paxton. Her third film began production in 1989 and was budgeted at $10 million, shooting on location throughout New York City. 
Blue Steel is the story of a recently graduated cop, Megan Turner, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who, on her first night on patrol, shoots a gun-wielding bandit who she catches holding up a supermarket. Her execution of the criminal is considered excessive and rash by her superiors, and Megan is suspended during which time she begins dating a commodities trader. <laughs> what? No, that's a Ron Silver thing. Like, I, no. You like, can't handle Ron? Okay, we'll get to him. Um, <laughs> she begins dating a commodities trader named Eugene, played by Herschel's favourite actor, Ron Silver. Unbeknownst to Megan, Eugene was a witness to the shooting and he stole the robber's handgun. He has now become obsessed with the violent image of Megan shooting the robber and has started to kill unsuspecting members of the public, leaving breadcrumbs for the police that lead them back to Megan. <laughs> okay. Megan struggles to convince the police force that Eugene is a psychopath hell-bent on killing her and her friends. And due to some slippery legal wrangling, he's able to maim and kill people close to her. Eventually, okay, what are you guys laughing at? The, the plot is so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, you I, know, no, keep going. I think it's good. Yeah, okay. It's good, yeah, yeah. It's, great. it's good okay. description. Because I'm, I'm winding up like a Magnum 44. It, I must admit, it was hard to write this synopsis. <laughs> Eventually, Megan shoots and kills Eugene after many violent encounters. Thematically, the film is reminiscent of Carpenter's Halloween, which also featured Jamie Lee Curtis on the run from an unrelenting psychopath. Bigelow was lauded by some critics at the time for her stylish directing, but the film barely managed to break even, and many critics considered the plotting to be a little bit over the top. In recent years, the film has been reassessed by feminist academics for its portrayal of stalking and abuse, as well as the frustration felt by the protagonist, who is not believed when she tells those around her that something is wrong. Herschel, what's your take on Blue Steel? I guess after I heard you summarise, Craig, the, the <laughs> sequence of the events in it, sure. that kind of, I don't know what else there is to say about it, if I'm being honest. Like, <laughs> y y y here's the thing. I think it's always really useful to look at reviews from the time yeah. and look at reviews that come out subsequently. So you got, um, this movie was re-released. My guess is, I don't know, on the back of um, something like Zero Dark Thirty or something like that and revisiting Bigelow. You've got a slew of primary reviews and then you've got a whole bunch of reconsidered reviews, and I think that's, that's telling about this movie. Because it coincides, Bruce, with you and I seeing this movie after we got it from Grog and Flicks, the video establishment yes. that sold liquor and, and hired out films that we spent a lot of our childhood in. Shout um, out again to Colleton. Colleton, Grog and Flicks, yeah. Western Suburbs Video. Fantastic. Uh, basically a, a barn with videos <laughs> and, and liquor. But we picked this movie up when... It came out onto the new release shelf, yeah. and we went to work again in getting this movie quickly. And when we got it, we were excited. Remember the VHS cover yeah, with Jamie Lee Curtis? Okay, it's, it's a great a, cover because the cover, the stylized cover, matches the kind of Bigelow. Bigelow uses a lot of blue hues in mm. her movies, like even Zero Dark or Near Dark. <laughs> There's a theme. All the dark. So she's um. She's part of that whole, and also it's not just her, right? There's like Michael Mann at the time. Yeah. He's done Thief. and you We've know. got dual perspectives. We've got the 14-year-old uh, first encounter with Blue Steel from the Grog and Flicks, and we watched it, and we were, we'd heard about it. We'd watched all of the Dirty Harrys, and we made our way through all the cop movies, the New York cop movies, all of that sort of stuff. So we were kind of excited about this. Right. So tell me your 14-year-old perspective. Okay, so we watched the movie, 
and we thought it wasn't any good at all. Yeah, we both hated it. <laughs> really? But also, I've got to say, you know, kudos to us. We've become like a little bit more analytical than just, oh, I hate that movie. Sure. We actually thought, because as Herschel said, we had a bit of a knowledge of, you know, we would have seen Death Wish, right? We knew about the vigilante stuff. We'd seen the Dirty Harrys. Our position, like I remember this vividly, at the time, I thought the plot was ridiculous. <laughs> Um, I thought, I remember us saying, like, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And watching it in the last week, I've got to say, this is one of the most nonsensical movies maybe of that entire era. But there's another important thing that happens here. So, yeah, nonsensical is a word that comes to mind really quickly after <laughs> I watch this. But there's another important thing. Ron Silva was coming off of Reversal of Fortune. I was talking to Bruce. Now, in Reversal of Fortune, and Jeremy Irons won the Oscar for Best Actor of that. Now, I don't love that movie. But I think Jeremy Irons' performance is one of the best performances. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Ron Silver in that movie is like... I well, don't he, Ron Silver virtually by himself destroys that film because what? it's potentially a great film. Mm. So what, uh, Blue Steel or Reversal? <laughs> Blue Steel is never going to be a great film, okay? Reversal could have been a great film. But the Ron, Ron Silver plays Alan Dershowitz as a lawyer and he hangs out with all these Harvard students. And every time it cuts... Well, hang on, the Alan Dershowitz? The, yeah, the famous... It's a true story, Reversal of Fortune. What? Alan the guy, Dershowitz the guy, was... The guy now that's basically a Giuliani supporter. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. So Alan Dershowitz is the character of Reversal of Fortune who's defending... That's Ron Silver's character. Wow. So Ron Silver plays but, but, it. Now, Ron Silver is... Awful in it. Yeah, but I have like, a key. You know, ever since I saw it, like maybe five years ago, I then had a theory about it. As soon as um, Jeremy Irons got tied to the project, people were going, oh, you're going to win Best Actor. You're the greatest mm. actor in the world. He was like the Jeremy. Yeah, and he, he, come he, of Dead Ring. He's pretty much playing a version of Dead Ringers as Klaus von Bülow. He was like the Daniel Day-Lewis of the yes. 80s and 90s, uh, right? Really good analogy there. So I, um, I think Ron Silver knew that this movie, this has got Oscar written all over it. So he tries to act. In Blue Steel. No, man, this is still reversal of fortune. What, are well, you I, I even in the room? Are you crazy? It's, this, links, this links intimately to Ron... I'm just waiting to get onto Blue Steel, guys. It links intimately to Ron Silver's performance in Blue Steel. Yes. all right. Because he, he amps it so much that I think he's, he's trying to say, look, I'm Ron Silver in my own right, and I'm going to be an A-lister. So he's nuts in it, right? Now, Ron Silver in Blue Steel starts the movie out as Francis Dollarhide and a manhunter. Like, mm. he, he's, he's, he's quite unnerving. He's quite weird. Who, Ron Silver? Ron Silver. Yeah. I'm going back. Now, this is back in Blue Steel territory okay. now. Yeah. Okay. The issue, the issue we've got here is you've got a movie that is attempting to redo the cop movie. But you're also coming off the back of something like Manhunter and the Thomas Harris phenomenon yep. and, and all of that stuff. So then you throw in the, the psychopathic kind of sexualized... Can I throw out one other touchstone? There's a clear um, kind of veneer of American Psycho. Did you guys think of that? The psychopathic stockbroker who's part of like the Uber... Like, he has to be a stockbroker. He can't be anything other than... A, it's really critical that when we, every time we go to him to, to like sketch his character, he's the stockbroker mm -hmm. who can do deals but with that's us. That's the sociopath. That's American, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that the stockbroker is a sociopath, is a psychopath kind of thing. And that's very much Brett Easton Ellis, American Psycho. Of but see, we, we knew Jamie era. Lee Curtis. We didn't know Catherine Bigelow. So we were excited for this movie. The issue that we had, though, is that you can throw in the stylistic technique, and Bigelow's got that everywhere, right? You can throw in um, Jamie Lee Curtis, which is is a, a really good performance, but she's good in everything she does, I think. Mm. Ron Silver starts out 
quite menacingly, but then he's written into caricature and becomes just nuts. But at the end of the day, you don't have any kind of narrative or sequence that has any logic to it whatsoever. Jamie Lee Curtis appears to have like 10 different motivations by the end of the movie, and I can only think it's the editing that they didn't have, you know, they had to cut it down to a certain length. It's quite a short movie. I think a hell of a lot of, of it was left on the cutting room floor in terms of the, the motivations of the characters. There are questionable things that occur in the film about what kind of character Jamie Lee Curtis is, and that to me is not interesting. That to me is just accidental. Mm. So I don't know... But where do you sit with the revisionist stuff, right? Because okay, so, so one of the reasons this became a movie of interest for me is about 12 years ago, a colleague of mine at Sydney Uni used to teach this in second year. And I think the approach was very much this was a radical feminist movie of this era, like in Hollywood. No one in Hollywood was doing this mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so I became interested in it from that point of view because I know that's how she – she wasn't teaching it like perfect narrative form. Right, the, you know the classical, you know American movie, or, or even the detective genre. She was looking at it from the point of view of the woman as cop, the woman as being stalked, the psycho stalking the woman kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm interested in like where do you guys sit with this kind of revisionism? Because Blue Steel has certainly been revised I'm in a significant way. A hundred percent with that because I've never seen this movie until two weeks ago, yeah. and I watched it and I went, oh, okay, I get this. Yeah. I feel like. It makes more sense today than it did back then. But also, I, I like to read a lot of feminist literature. Yeah. And I do see the Cassandra narrative, like no one believes her. And then yeah. I see everything in the second half, which is even as a police officer, no one believes her. No one trusts her. She's still suffering um, an abusive partner who is nonstop after her. Now, it doesn't make sense, maybe not narrative-wise. Yeah. Like, no, like that's what I'm saying. But it, it doesn't does, make sense. It, the, the emotion and the feeling and the experience of her makes sense to me. I'm like, yeah, I get this. Yeah. This sucks so and that, no one I mean, believes that's you. The thing and that you're lashing out and you're doing irrational things because I find the sleeping with the other guy <laughs> so <laughs> bizarre. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I also don't understand why she fell in love with him. But then I, I think there's a but lot of problems like that. But the experience, the feeling, which reminds me so much of horror, which is what yeah. happens in horror. There doesn't have to be You logic. mean like the, the person you, stalked by the yeah, predator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Anyone yeah. who's like, which Jamie Lee has played a, a bunch of times. I'm like, yeah, I get that. I get this, just the feeling. It, it maybe you reckon Bigelow's casting of it is deliberate in I that way? I think so. I think that, so. Like if you think I, about I, it, she I does Halloween, right? But then she also did The Fog. She right did away. road games. She did a whole bunch of like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, movies where she keeps playing a scream queen. But it's for good for ages. it's good for Bigelow and Jamie Lee Curtis. Bigelow yeah. was striking out into what was if you look at the nineteen you know the period of the eighties into the nineties. This starts a new decade, and yeah. Bigelow I think he's putting a stamp on it and let's saying, "Let's talk a bit about Bigelow because I yeah. always find us such an interesting." So I haven't taught Blue Steel, but I will say a film that I teach a lot is Point Break. Mm -hmm. But which when is I the teach next it, film of hers? Right. So she, I mean. The reason I say, like, what do you guys think of the revisionism is because Bigelow has been kind of reincarnated from the genre person to almost like viewed as a highly sophisticated feminist filmmaker, right? But what's, so, what's Bigelow's latest, though? It was, it was no, no, but not just latest. I mean, I'm saying, okay, if you go Blue Steel, Point Break, Strange Days, right, which is very much about men looking at women. Yeah. But right. I'm saying Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, so Zero Dark Thirty is another one, Did right? she do Detroit, did she? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she did Detroit. Okay. So I'm interested in, okay, she does the early stuff. Near Dark is an interesting vampire film because that has lots of subversive, transgressive things in it. She was always working against type. And I think the reason 
um, certain kinds of groups latched onto a certain kinds of audiences is because the vampire movie was not your traditional vampire movie. She does the cop movie and re-kind of conceptualizes the cop from a male to a female. What does that look like? The serial killer movie is now anchored from the woman's point of view, but then she made it at point break, which is kind of a macho movie, but I, as I argue with my students, is very much a subversive masculinity movie. Right. Well, the key thing and with the Point homoeroticism break, between the, the, Swayze and well, Keanu the key Reeves thing with so Point Break is is Gary Busey. You put Gary Busey in in Blue Steel, you got an Oscar winner. <laughs> Look, wait, on but, a serious but note, then I want to say Strange Days, right? It was another critical moment, and then Hurt Locker, yeah, right, which is about traumatized. But if you if you uh, go traumatized male from war, but so Hurt Locker. That's getting into what was that ten years now? How long, ten more than well, ten years? No, no, Hurt Locker is around. I would say it's about twenty years. Okay, old. So, so you go Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty. Those movies themselves have been reinterpreted now yeah. in the wake of the Iraqi War, the yeah. the, the War on Terror. And so, so those interpretations themselves, ironically, the reviews have been redone mm-hmm. of those. So, so they came out at um, Zero Dark Thirty was coming out so what ninety eight or something or something silly. Um, what? Zero no, Dark? Hurt Locker was... Oh, you mean on, on Metacritic. Metacritic. So, oh, so, right. so if you look at the modern reviews, they've all come down now because they're saying there's an aspect of cancel to it because you can't, you can't yeah. depict all the Americanism. Because of torture, Abu Ghraib. Exactly. Yeah, so so I, I think a, a very important issue we've got here is that... And look, I was doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations with the calculator, and um, <laughs> I went through some reviews... F- Primary reviews, mm. threw them in, Rotten Tomatoes, got a mean score. You're looking at about 40, all right, for Blue Steel. Really? Yes, but if you come to the modern stuff and you throw it in, you're looking at about 70. Now, I'm not mm. saying that's good or bad, but the point I'm trying to make, though, is that context and the passage of time will recode the, the quality of the yep. value of the movie based on the way society has evolved. And that's cool, but it doesn't mean that the movie at the time had achieved anything more. Like, this is a cop movie with holes all the way through the plot. After the first 20 minutes, I lost kind of interest in it, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. And then the ending to it, just, it's just off the radar. I mean, it's it's interesting to contrast this with Silence of the Lambs that comes, what? That's 88, right? Nah, that, no, ninety something. I think no, ninety one. Okay, so, so silence, silence comes just comes after, after and I think Blue Steel is clearly informing Silence in some ways. But Manhunter is informing is Blue, Blue Steel. Steel. But then Silence takes the more classical model. Like Catherine Bigelow is not, in my sense, in my opinion, a kind of classical American filmmaker. All the movies are about strange excesses. So Point Break also has those narrative Im- improbabilities, right? Um, certainly Blue Steel does. Hurt Locker, I mean, all of these I, are I about the, excessive personas and personalities. Yeah, I think the excessiveness in Point Break is, is lauded and what people love because yep. it's associated with testosterone in action. Yep. Whereas in this movie, it did the negative thing. It yep. was like, what the hell is happening? Why mm. is... But it starts out with some fantastic stuff. Like, what about... Ju- I think it's just well, the, post- opening, the, the, the the supermarket shootout. Yeah. Is but all, the post credit sequence or something um, where... Is it her holding the gun? And it's kind of like like it's it's quite a like I don't know it's this very physical kind of holding yeah. of the gun and mm. the barrel. Well, the gun's and, very phallic in the whole movie. It reminded me of Magnum Force, which is the gun at the mm. start of the movie, right? But where I contrasted is that I think there's a weakness in the narrative here. I think Jamie Lee Curtis is excellent. I actually think the supporting characters are, are, are like the the cop that she has the. The you know the she, she has the the, the night at the end which is kind of yeah, yeah. that's out of the 
I didn't see that coming. But like Ron Silver, <laughs> I think he's basically saying to Bigelow, and maybe Bigelow is is in on it, and he's going, "Look, I'm just gonna." I'm going all in. I'm, I don't know what's going to happen in the scene, but I'm going to go all in. You know, the mise en He's like I'm Martin sa- Sheen out of Apocalypse yeah. Now. It's just like, shoot and let Ron do what he needs like to do. Like, I'm going to save it for the mise en scene. And I'm not doing this for the mise en scene, but the close up where it's basically just his face, but it's got a close up of his teeth. And you're thinking, where did this come from? I find, like, I find Ron still a little strange. Yeah. N- not, not just bad, but also just like, why is this guy in this movie? Who cast well, this I guy? Well, I actually thought he was. So crazily miscast in this film. Yeah. Well, what about the? Because I think he's, she's so good uh, that he ends up. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't look right. He's written into the periphery because yeah. he becomes nuts. I was talking well, to who, Bruce who before. Who plays Dollarhide in Manhunter? The uh, dude that went on to the very tall, yeah, very tall odd guy. He's, he's excellent. He's oh, wonderful. He's but not only that. What about Christian Bale in American Psycho, which is the Mary Harron film, which is a fantastic film. Mm. I don't understand why they don't play the stockbroker as a kind of Gordon Gecko-ish character. Why yeah, but, make him yeah, but this then, weird bearded? Well, yeah, he, but then you're into the consumerist culture yeah, kind of analysis, yeah. which is complete. This is not what the film's after. It's trying to. I think it's trying but to. But it does gesture to that actually because he's got the suits. He takes it to a fancy restaurant. Yeah. He drives the nice yeah. car. So it's like um, she is this working class family. They have the barbecue, the, the hot dogs, and stuff. And then he takes it to a very fancy place. I, so clearly he brings in that whole capitalist mm. world. My biggest problem is I don't find him attractive. Like yeah. I, I can see so many other men in movies and go, oh, yes, for sure. I, I get mean, why Craig, you that's be... been exceptionally kind, okay? <laughs> to say you don't find him attractive. I, I find it hard to look in for most of the movies. No, but having said that, he's tremendous. Like his look with his beard and his suit, he's very stable. Okay, so so is, is yeah, that what Bigelow's cool, going for? Like he's got to be cool. Like, no, but isn't he stable on the, the surface cool and nuts on the underneath? It's like stable on top, absolutely mad. You I know? see the beard as, or as too as homely, or as um, or, or the beard hides insecurity. Yes, he's supposed to be. I am the Superman. I'm the master of the universe. I should not have to hide anything. The, the Look, beard is the know? thing that throws me, and I think <laughs> Why didn't everyone. you shave, Craig? Why didn't you shave? It's true. Well, who, who, what heroes have beards in any yeah. movie ever, apart Very from rare. grizzly westerns or the thing? But it's interesting you Who's say this, got a beard? No, it's interesting you say this because, of course, he then goes on to do his best work soon after this in, um, in Van Damme's vehicle, Time, Time Cop. Cop. Okay. And I said to Bruce, the scene when he's talking to himself. What the fuck are you doing here? What do you mean? You called me. Left a message with the Senate operator. I didn't leave any message, you fucking idiot. He's literally talking to himself. He's come back in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, two, that's two Ron Silvers overacting in the same scene. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Ron great. Silver, he was, he's like a baseball player. And every, like, we're in the World Series at the moment as we tape in this account. I'm watching. So, as a baseball player, when you come up, you're desperate to connect. You'll do anything to make that hit, right? That's Ron Silver. He's put himself on the line. He's saying to Bigelow, give me the rag with the blood on it. I'll wipe it all over my face and let's just see what happens. I would love to know what Ron Silver had to do with creating his performance. Because it is a word we've used with other filmmakers like Tarantino. So and, this, and all of Bigelow is unhinged, right? Mm. Now, I, I do get drawn to that sort of style. This movie is compromised a bit by just such narrative improbabilities that I just find I get pulled out of the movie. Nonetheless, stylistically, it's just oozing, right? She's a cool filmmaker. Oh, she's a I cool really filmmaker, like but mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with that completely. But that's all Bigelow. Yeah. Like, I, I love watching anything that she does yeah. because... You're having, that open you're having fun with the framing and everything like that. Do you remember the long track shot in uh, Point Break where Keanu walks in with Gary Busey at the first time? It's this incredibly elaborate shot through the internal. Like, 
I get yeah, it. She's like, great. I, I agree with you completely with, with Catherine Bigelow. But what I missed with this is the first half hour, you get an incredibly interesting hook. A person who's in a holdup decides to mess around with a cop who saved everyone's life. Mm. That is a clever f- fun to me. Mm. I was thinking, that's a great idea. Damn, this mm. is going to be cool. What, one thing that we haven't mentioned, which is in the first half still, I thought the way they did the mum and the mum being oh. abused. Yes. I thought that was... In fact, can I just say, Jamie Lee Curtis is wonderful, but of all the other people in the movie, how good is Louise Fletcher as the mum? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could just oh, think, man, well, you're a classy actor. I was just right? thinking... You're who, a good actor. I was watching the movie and I thought, who the hell is that? I didn't look it up. Yeah. It's Louise Fletcher. She's so good. So like, for audiences, Louise Fletcher plays Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. She won an Oscar She won for the that. Oscar for one of the most famous Oscar wins because she's that good as Nurse Ratchet. And, and I remember her in uh, the early 80s in a Doug Trumbull sci-fi brain... Oh, yeah. Um, um, is it Brainwave? Brainwave, or? Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's just... Uh, a, gen- a, a generic scientist in that. She's very mm. good, but yeah. just not this. So it's midway between Nurse Ratchet and what she is in this film, which yeah. is a broken yeah. ho- woman suffering. And just TV. her expressions in this. Oh. She has been a battered woman but her whole is, life. This you know? is why and I they're think, so good. This is why I think a lot of us left on the cutting room floor, because I think there's a hell of a lot more of her in the... Mm. In the mm. But so Jamie Lee Curtis arrests her father, Love drives her. him mm. to the police station, and then he goes, sometimes I just get angry, and she goes... Dad, don't do it again. And then she drives him home. Mm. And you're going, what now? Where, no, where see, I, from? I actually love that sequence because I can see a daughter saying, I'm not going to arrest you. But like the daughter, like also what I like about it is the daughter's grown up with this. She's seen her but mom you need, beaten but all you the need time. need to build that more. Yeah, I mean, more, I, mean I also thought it made perfect sense to be a cop and that's why yeah. she's a cop. And and that's, but that's why the father hates the that's fact right. that she's a cop. And, and that's interesting like early and you don't know why yeah. and I love that. I yeah, but, look, a lot of but, but, but look what we're doing here. Right? We're inventing the narrative. We're not inventing, but we're, 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 like, we're, we're filling create, in the blanks. We're, we're filling in the blanks that's not actually on the screen. No, but that's okay. I'm okay with that because that subplot works. Not when it's 90% of the movie. No, no. The rest of the movie, there's some troubles, especially with the logic of how killers work and how the police work and all that stuff yeah. or just how people move through space and time <laughs> <laughs> how how space and time work within a frame what about Jen- <laughs> what that about- should make sense what about what about Jenkins um, the dad from Step Brothers like the lawyer, oh, Ron yeah. Silver's lawyer. He's just he's he just comes in and, and he's, he's so uncouth. He's just throwing his weight around. <laughs> they, they say something. He goes, "We'll have you in court for that." Like yeah. he's just throwing his weight around mm. in every scene. Actually, Craig. Where the movie falls down, unfortunately, is not to be able to carry through that idea of this woman who's stalked and traumatized. Because mm. the reason is, it is just not probable enough that nobody believes her. Like, it's just not possible. Like, the way the law is structured in that movie is inconceivable. That she's a cop and she's saying, I, know, I saw him do this. I I've just finished reading recently Gavin De Becker's book, The Gift of Fear, which is like a very popular book from the mid-90s and it's all about a guy, Gavin DeBecker, is paid to stop stalkers and to keep celebrities safe and to work out what happened at shootings and who Mm. this person was. And it is full of examples that are exactly like this film where it seems improbable but but when people are are malicious and want to exploit the system to harm usually a woman, they can do it. And and it plays out exactly like this movie. And I think Bigelow might have had trouble and it might be inconsistent because she might have been noted to death by everyone because it's such an 
even today, it's a concept that isn't played out much in movies. You yeah. know, it's not a big thing. So in 1989, to be d- making this and to be getting notes going, this makes... And she would have kept fighting going, yes, it, she would have had the same experience yeah. as Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> trying to make this movie. That's yeah, what yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. I don't know. I, that's how I yeah. feel about I it. I just want to say, can I say one more thing to finish yeah. up? Um, and I, I don't like coming back to Ron Silver because we've unloaded on the guy in, in, in the pod already. But what was it with Ron Silver in like... One of the final scenes, you know, like around in the in the forest uh, scene where the where you handcuff the <laughs> yeah. cop, where Jamie Jamie Lee handcuffs the cop to the thing, and she basically nearly gets him killed in handcuffing him, <laughs> but then he turns up with dirt all over his face, sniffing dirt, baby. He looks like I, I, uh, I said to Bruce, he looks like he's out of Dawn of the Dead, like a zombie. What yeah. happened there? For some weird reason, I was also kind of repulsed by him just having dirt in his beard. <laughs> yeah. The I beard mean, it's, is, you know, beard, it really concerns me. a real problem. Your, both your physical reactions to Ron Silver, that really concerns me. Because no, you never gave this man a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say, you look at um, Dollar Hyde, or you look at Red Dragon, or you look at Hannibal mm. Lecter, that's how you sort of connect to the psycho mm. that is opposite your hero. We don't get that enough. I think yeah. we see some weird sequences where Ron Silver does some weird stuff, yeah. but it doesn't always make you feel the way yeah. it does where you go, this yep. person's sinister, this person is sympathetic, this per- like I don't have any... I want to add cliches to, as well. Like when he's something. speaking to the voices in the room, it's like, come on, man. I want to add something to that. In those other movies, and, and as I say, I think this movie... Is heavily informed by Dollarhide Manhunter, Michael mm. Mann's Manhunter, especially with the sound design and yeah. stuff oh, like definitely. that. Right? But those psychopaths are in- very intelligent, hyper intelligent people, intellectuals. They're not rolling around in the dirt. <laughs> All right? Let's move on to our second film. Take two. Our second film is The Departed from 2006. Italian-American filmmaker Martin Scorsese had spent the preceding three decades making some of the most famous and critically acclaimed films of the 70s, 80s and 90s. His frequent collaborators included the actor Robert De Niro with films like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull and Goodfellas, three-time Oscar-winning editor Thelma Schoenmacher who had edited the majority of his films and next-gen heartthrob Leonardo DiCaprio who acted in the film Shutter Island and The Wolf of Wall Street, which was one of our most downloaded episodes when we covered it in season one. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. You know, I was on the ABC recently, we were talking about Kills of the Flower Moon, mm. and I made this kind of blanket statement that no one challenged in the callers, but <laughs> I said, I thought Wolf of Wall Street was the best movie of the 21st century. Wow. And everyone just kind of went along with it. And it, it was nice. All the callers of the 21st in. century, all of the 2000s, so all of the 2000s, best movie of the two. I mean, I that's, 20, that's 23 years. I mean, but I'd be like, okay, when I say best movie, I'm being a bit hyped. But I, I would say in five, like In the Mood for Love, definitely, you know, I would put there. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, absolutely okay, uh, with it. I'm just saying. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> like, I mean, this is a beautiful list. We've got other list. things to talk about today. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm midway through my reading, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I want to say in the future episode, I'm going to challenge you on some of these okay, things. This I like is a that. big future episode I got planned. All right. Now, The Departed follows two recent graduates of the Boston Police Force. One character played by Matt Damon has been groomed from an early age by an Irish mafia boss played by Jack Nicholson and is now a detective on the take from the crime lord. The other graduate is played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who has come from a broken home and is recruited by the undercover division of the police force that operates in a bubble away from the rest of the force. 
Leo's character then starts working for the crime boss and the two recruits are now at cross purposes as they feed information back to their superiors. Standing in between both men is the police psychiatrist played by Vera Farmiga. Farmiga, isn't it? Far- Vera Farmiga. Played by Vera. It's like Austin Bowles and Farsha. <laughs> Farsha. I always, because no, once a long time ago, I was watching Source Code and then someone overheard me say Source Code with Vera Farmiga and they said, hang on, you want Veal, Varm- Veal Parmesan with Source Code? <laughs> <laughs> keep that All in. Right. Keep that in. That's gold. Cool. All right. Okay. Um, police psychiatrist played by Vera Farmiga. Thank you so much. Matt moves in with her, and Leo, who is her patient, seduces her. Eventually, cops and bad guys come to blows, and Leo finds himself alone without his superiors who know who he is. Then, in a turn of good fortune, he discovers that Matt Damon is the rat, and both men see to it that neither of them survive. The film is a high-budget American remake of the 2002 Hong Kong film Infernal Affairs, which, as Bruce Isaacs will detest, is a very good movie. Oh, it's amazing. Infernal Affairs is brilliant. The Departed deals with identity and features several jump cuts and expressionistic shots and isn't afraid to end on a visual metaphor of a rat crawling on a railing. The film turned its $90 million budget into $290 million worldwide and was lauded by critics around the world, making it onto many top 10 lists for the years and usually at first place. Despite being nominated 14 times for an Oscar, Scorsese's Oscar for directing this movie is the only one to date that he has Which won. Which is pretty amazing if you think of the guy never won for Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas Casino, won for The Departed. And, and a, since not what? And in an interview he said... He thought it was the funniest thing in the world that all of his movies never had a narrative, they never had a story. It was about life and character. Mm. And now he makes his first movie that's about a plot and it wins him, <laughs> he wins him the Oscar and he goes, maybe I should just come up with different stories all the time. <laughs> Who would have thought a filmmaker should work on some stories? <laughs> Bruce, you're a huge fan of violence and have a real hankering for cheese, you rat bastard. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on The Departed? I'm going to say provocatively, this is virtually a perfect movie. Whoa. Okay. I was so excited to find out Scorsese was doing a cop movie because we all grew up with Scorsese. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, Taxi Driver, I had a, where should I had a poster on the wall, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. well, I can't even explain what Travis Bickle means to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean that sincerely. Travis well, you, you try to emulate him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I live my life, you know, with a with a little sheet full of handguns in my room. <laughs> and you've carried it onto your incel movement you're generating <laughs> online. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the amount of times I quote dialogue at a taxi driver just in my general life is just incredible, right? He's God's so, lonely man, this boy. <laughs> so, I mean, the, 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 the imprint of Marcus Scorsese on my life is extraordinary. And, you know, in my own professional life, it's just huge. Um when I found that he was doing a cop movie, of all things, I just thought, whoa. And then when I found that it was in a remake of Infernal Affairs, which I adored, I just thought, this is incredible. The reason I, it's such an important movie, I'm of all the critics that say, I get it, it was nuts that he hadn't won the best director before for all of his masterpieces. He deserved it for The Departed, in my opinion, 100%. Um, and this is what makes the movie so special. It's the best of the cop thriller, I think, that you can get, right? It's mm. the French connection for our era. And I, you guys know what I think of the French connection. Yeah. The difference is, though, when you've got someone like Martin Scorsese doing it, he can't but be Martin Scorsese. So it's got problems with fathers and sons. 
So fathers and sons obviously informs all of Scorsese, right? You can go back to Scorsese's first student film, Who's That Knocking At My Door, which is like a miracle for a student film. It's about kids growing up on the streets and how they relate to broken homes, fractured relationships between parents and children. So what happens if you get Scorsese, who's making a cop movie, but the guy couldn't not be himself? Even in second-tier Scorsese, he's still Martin Scorsese, which is one of the greatest filmmakers in the history of the medium. So what I love about this movie is I personally, I'm keen to hear what you guys think. I think he weaves the complex thematics of parenting um, repression, especially male repression, sexuality, and especially in this film, so interestingly, homosexuality, right? The idea of violence, uh, duplicity, the critique of the Catholic Church, which goes all the way back to Mean Streets. So you've got the whole Scorsese universe is almost like it's, imported into the traditional cops um, and and baddies. To make that work on this canvas, right? And I should say Infernal Affairs is like a 95-minute, as taut as you're ever going to get, classic crime, like thriller. But it's tight. It's so tightly plotted. It's so tightly narrated. That's not what Scorsese does. He takes the skeleton and explodes it into, like, one of the great American crime movies. That's my take on it, right? Um, I don't think it ever puts a foot wrong. Um, The only thing I will say is I can't say it's my favorite Jack Nicholson performance. I love Jack Nicholson in it, but for me he's uncomfortably close to the Joker. (laughs) And I can't help but see him bringing in moments, you know, when he smirks, for example, with Frenchie. Uh, He's, like, too near the Joker. Um, I think and, Leo. And Frenchie's just like Bob in Joker. Remember so that? So Frenchie yeah. and Bob, like Frenchie and uh, and and Jack Nicholson, um, Costello, are exactly like the Joker and Bob, right? Yeah. So I I found that and the henchmen are a little bit like the Joker with his henchmen. Mm. So it was if I thought Scorsese could have toned that down and asked Jack to kind of bring something a little bit more original. It's almost like if if we'd had <laughs> ask him just to ramp up the normal a bit. <laughs> Yeah, could you play up normal a little bit more, right? Um, I thought maybe they could have done with a little bit more development of that performance, mm. right? Like maybe an extra month of just prep for it. I don't know, maybe Jack was on something and he lifted too much of... <laughs> you mean um, he was on a substance or, or something? <laughs> or? Hey, he's almost certainly on that. But I mean, maybe he was on a movie, maybe she... And they didn't have time to kind of create something entirely original. But that said, Leo, mm. in this movie, not just the performance... But he inhabits and breathes that world of, I am a stranger in a land where I'm perfect. He's the perfectly surveilled. He's Harry Cole from the conversation imported into the cop drama. And again, like this is so we, I, we are, we I, are I ramping he, it. Right? I thought he was very good. In oh him. man, he's I, so look, good. I very I'm not much normally a fan of him, but I yeah. thought he was great. I think this is the first performance of DiCaprio where you say, "Okay, this guy is going to be maybe the biggest actor in the world. He's going to mm. work with Scorsese consistently yep. and anybody he wants to work with." But I have to say, uh, <laughs> I was hearing Samuel Jackson when you were saying how great the movie was. Yeah. Well, allow me to retort. <laughs> the, the thing from I don't think this is going to be controversial, so I'm going to say it. I don't think. It's top draw Scorsese. What? Yes, I what don't think. I was, I'm very interested. And you know how much I love Scorsese. I, I love. I've seen this all is Scorsese. Crazy. For me, this movie is a little bit too much good show, mm. and a little bit too. Do you reckon it's too proud of itself? It's too saying, 
I know I'm great. Okay, what anchor do we have in this movie that puts us into the, I suppose, um, who do we empathize with? Now, you could say Leo DiCaprio, okay? Yeah, because th- I found him a, a, like a Vera Farmiga. I thought she played, that whole idea of, that's a triangle, the love triangle, right? But the love triangle's complex because you've got Vera, Leo, Vera, Matt Damon. I mean, so many subtleties. We don't know who's the father of the child. But yes, my favorite character in this is Martin Sheen, and especially the father son relationship with DiCaprio when he he says, come in and have something to eat. I've got some food. Mm. So when Martin Sheen dies, that to me is the pinnacle of the film. But Mm. I've got a problem with aspects of this movie. The first one is, and I don't know if it's casting or if it's Mm. the acting performances, but for me, Jack Nicholson and Frenchie by extension. Now, both, both super actors in their own right. Mm. We're talking about Ray Winston. Ray Winston. Now, the issue that I've got is, what was Scorsese trying to do here? So he has depicted the mafia, or in the Italian form of the mafia, the five families of New York, mm. that sort of thing, right? And he's done that a lot, very successfully. Like, he's, he's been very clear about the fact that I grew up in these neighborhoods, I know these people intimately. He, w- he would know about the Irish organized crime. He mm. would have grown up through that. What I don't get here is I don't get the credibility that he was able to imbue into these other worlds. I th- For me... The very opening to it with Jack Nicholson's voiceover takes me out of reality already. I, see, I, wow. I remember sitting in the cinema. I think I was at Dendi. I think I was by myself just watching it. When uh, the stones kick in mm. and you get that footage of the civil rights and, and, and uh, I love Boston all of that. and all the people throwing the bottles. And then Jack Nicholson's voice comes over and you get that track in shadow. Mm. I love I all of that. I was just going, isn't it so beautiful to have a Scorsese wash over you when a movie starts? I, I love all of that. Which I got again with Flower Moon the other Jack, day. Jack Nicholson with his like, little golf hat mm. on and everything yeah. like that. Like what? He, he's, the, he's the godfather of, of, yeah. the, of the Boston yeah. Yeah. organized the criminal problem? family. What's the problem? Um, <laughs> see, Craig's one. Okay, well, what's wrong with any of this? Yeah, right? I don't know what's going Matt on. Matt Damon, he's t- he's too much as well. Um, <laughs> no, but Matt, Damon, I thought he was like really well understated. Can I can I say this, Herschel? This is someone I find pitch perfect. Mark Wahlberg in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I, this movie I hangs on what guy. you think of Will No, no, no. He's too much. He's no, sure. Okay, well, what about Alex Baldwin? They're all too much. Oh, I see now. Okay. No. I, okay. I'm the, oh, Do you I, know, can I say who Wahlberg reminds me of in this? Remember Memories of Murder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 one of the guys who does oh, the jump the, kicks? the cops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he reminds me exactly of <laughs> that But the character. tone is completely different. Memories of Murder, it goes from finding a body in, 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 the, du- in the aqueduct to basically satire yeah. and comedy no, no, in no, the scene. You, this is not that. There's another in Memories of Murder that's not in Departed. But... I'm, I'm going to do a business in the bloodbath, but I think there is a, a there is a Greek tragedy underpinning this movie that is there, and I think Scorsese has hold of it, and I think he brings out the uber style. I'm Marcus Scorsese. This is a reflexive movie. Like people who said the rat running across the window is ridiculous. Yeah. I was thinking. Do you guys even know, like, Scorsese at all? This guy spent his whole career no, no. commenting when, when on it. When came out, I absolutely loved it. I loved it for the Infernal mm. Affairs. I loved yeah. it for the, you know, my favorite scene in it was where um, the blood-covered phone is sitting on the desk and it begins to ring. Oh, and brilliant. then they're calling each other. And well, I that, thought, can I say, Damn. that is almost shot for shot from Infernal Affairs. So, so look, I loved all of that. It's just when I watch it again, I feel that, again, the narrative is kind of subjugated to the look of the film in this one. Mm. And I don't think Scorsese, for can me I, anyway, I don't think he's got the balance perfect. Can I ask what you guys one. made of the fireworks in uh, Thelma Schoonmaker's editing? 
Like, is this the vibe? To, when I say fire, I'm, I mean, no, no, I mean it figuratively. Like, just how over the top the editing is. I love is. it. I've never seen, a, no Scorsese movie looks like this movie. But there's right? a sequence to so I'm just wondering, what are you guys thinking? When Leo's it? getting freaked out and getting yeah. and stressed and it starts jump cutting. Jump cut. Oh, almost, man, I love that. Almost to the subliminal effect of, like, normally I can because I can edit. Yeah. I, I notice a yeah, jump yeah, cut. Yeah. But I was like, did they jump cut? So this is what the other the thing. Did you notice happened? a couple of times? Very, very subtle jump cuts. It was right? amazing. When you I say jump back. cuts, are you talking about sometimes when, when like the, the, like the, the screen almost jumps? It looked like a glitch almost. So a yeah, jump cut is just not a, it's not a rational cut. But were there a couple of shots where we're watching and then the you frame freezes yes. and then we jump? So, on, so in the battle scene, the final shootout, um, let's say a, a shotgun goes off and yeah. you've got a freeze frame on it. Now that's what I was... I thought there was a problem with my file. I took it back <laughs> and I was and I'm going, no, no, it's part of the, it's, yeah. it's part of the editing. So, yeah. so it, now a lot of people are going to go, whoa, 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 hang on a second. This is too much. When I was in the cinema, I reveled in it. Like, okay, I, loved I reveled it. in it the first time at the, at the cinema. Maybe the, when I saw it after. I mean, that again, the great. I no longer ever. revel in it because me, it's heading toward the kind of almost music video aspect of it with some of the. You know, but see, I, I think Scorsese yeah. was doing that. I think he was going. No, no, I'm not saying I'm, I'm minus Scorsese. I can do what Scorsese is never. You can do it. I'm going to do Scorsese's it. Scorsese's never not been in control of what he's doing. It's, yeah. a, it's a choice on Scorsese. It's a choice on Shoemaker's part because like, they've been working together for forty years. But right? I think yeah. the choice affects the narrative. The way that Walberg is so chaotic is the way mm. the editing is so mm. chaotic because they have no also, control and anymore. Leo the increasingly characters. loses control of yes, himself. Yes, I think that represents him in, the, in totally, everything around him. But don't you feel with Wahlberg like there's... Okay, so Wahlberg is famously... Okay, with, with um, uh, Ben I Affleck... I can't help laughing every time and, you mention Wahlberg. And, and, and Wahlberg with his, with his Boston, you know, the departed and all of that sort of thing, all right? Now, <laughs> hey, that was pretty good, I'm sure. Very good. What, I, what I'm saying is I reckon the script was maybe four sentences long... <laughs> And then Wahlberg's got maybe three minutes of speech because he's he's got things from high school where he's going, oh, you don't know Shakespeare. Like, I'm, I'm saying that's written into it, yeah. but it's it's <laughs> so much time for Wahlberg in his in his in his in his abuse yeah. of of Leo no, DiCaprio. I think possibly because I like what you're saying there because obviously Scorsese lets the actors really like live, right? I think what happened was they thought. We got a firecracker here. Yeah. Wahlberg has brought it, man. Let's give him a few more but, takes. But and also, he's just Ma- off Martin, Martin Sheen's character, and he would like Martin Sheen's a great actor, yeah. right? He would turn to either Martin or uh, Scorsese or anger. What's going on here? Do I need to respond to this? But he never does. He yeah. just looks straight ahead at, at Leo. And I he, love that. And and it's sort of like that. Well, this must be planned. This isn't a yeah. co- this isn't an actor being annoying and going. And too it almost hard. subverts the scene, right? Because yeah. you got this guy. Completely insulting Leo all the time <laughs> with racial but epithets. That's, that's actually the best Co- writing. The, yeah. the example of the but best writing. But Martin Sheen is just deadpan. Well, like, in the first office, you're not a statey, son. <laughs> yeah. In the in the first interview, he goes, "You'll have to excuse Officer Ding." Ding. <laughs> but then in the car, where Leo DiCaprio is frazzled, he goes, "They're going to they're gonna f and kill me." Right? Yeah. Is there any uh, a part of it where you're going, "Look, it's starting to feel a bit like Wolf of Wall Street a bit." It's Only that, Jack. A couple of times with Jack, but that's often because. His accent is all over the shop, mm. right? But I can kind of go, he's, his performance is still great because he's menacing. And I think he, he really displays that I am a myth in this neighborhood. I walk into a room and everyone freezes. I think he carries that really well. But the movie hinges on DiCaprio's like searing performance and he's... He's, he's, he's like so on the edge, right? That's something we and complete. We all three of us. I know you two love this movie. Mm. I look. I think it's an anything Scorsese does. I think goes immediately into 
Can I? You know, the, the great the two, stuff. But... For me, the two ways to that the two things that have to be acknowledged to be able to read this movie in a way that I think is genuine in terms of what the movie is presenting is the rat at the end. Uh, in my opinion, um, it's right. It, 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 it that it's a glorious scene because you got the scene of the dome yeah. and it's the failure of the dream. Yeah, right? I, and, and I was hubris. amazed at the reviewers so going, I, "Oh, that's silly." Saying, what is Scorsese doing? I mean, this is Martin Scorsese. This guy gives raging bull. Okay, let like take him on his terms, right? So that's number one. Number two, you have to acknowledge the very explicit quotation of the final scene of the third man when Vera Farmiga yeah. walks past yeah. Matt Damon and says, what about the so baby? That, that's v- that is, it's the whole posture, the whole shot, everything is the third man. To that, that's virtually Tarantino quotation, right? You are not just saying, hey, it's an homage. Can, can I just quote, say... quoting the scene. Can I just say that in reference to the third man, yeah. Blue Steel had that sequence up in the helicopter where he's talking, like in the third man, yeah. about all the specs down there oh, yes. moving. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, That's this very is much, quite yeah. a coincidence that we yep. picked these two films that reference the third man. I also <laughs> think Blue Steel and, and Departed have something in common because I think it's about the police kind of state and, and, and duplicity as well, inhabiting mm. false identities and like being paranoid, that you're going to live in a world of paranoia. I want to say something really quickly for our listeners out there, but a little bit of homework. Um, I went into some of the discussion rooms about, okay, how did Dingham, Dingham kills um, uh, Matt Damon at yeah. the end, right? Does he do it because he suspects, does he have the envelope with the word citizens on it? Has he been handed something or or whatever? So a lot of people have different theories on this, and it's quite interesting to read up on the different interpretations of how the ending plays out, let's Mm. say. I I, I did find that interesting. Well, I I think, um, to me at that point, I'm kind of relaxing all those motivations. And for me, it's a lot about what comes to the fore is the power of this father figure, for Leo and for Dignan. Mm. Like, they, they are, they've both lost fathers, right? In the same way, you know what's a really beautiful scene? When Matt Damon shoots Jack Nicholson and he phones Gwen mm. and says, you know, we lost him, Gwen. Yeah. There's genuine emotion there. This was his father. You know, in Freud, there's, there's, a, there's a theory of, like, the, the, the ideal father and then the dark, the shadow father. And... I, I'm not saying that Marsko says is a big Freudian, although I know that he, he's you know, an exceptionally well-read person. But it seems to me that has been a thematic in all of Scorsese, the ideal uh, father to raise the son and then the shadow father that raised. And when, when Matt Damon says to Gwen, we, we lost him, Gwen, I was like heartbroken. He'd lost his father. You know, when he says to him, how could you sell us out to the FBI? And his father says to him, well, grow up. That's like every veneer of your life comes crushing down. I also love, yeah. um, I love Alec Baldwin basically <laughs> doing Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross in The Departed. <laughs> what about he goes, the Patriot Act, I love the Patriot Act. <laughs> I love the Patriot Act. What about when, when the guy makes a mistake? Instead of like he's angry, he just starts beating him up. <laughs> he, he assaults, he assaults the police Alec officer. Baldwin, yeah. And can I, oh, one other thing that, like, which is again very Scorsese, but all of the, refer- the references to being homosexual, being a homo, not being able to be a man is so Scorsese. And the subtext of Matt Damon not being able to perform as the virile heterosexual man is, again, another elevation of what should just be a cop movie, mm. but into this complex thematic. And, you know, it's a Martin Scorsese movie. 
All right, there it is. Let's start comparing them and let's start comparing individual scenes. Let's move on to our mise en scene. Mise en scene. Now it's time for our mise en scene where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first is Herschel. What have you chosen from <laughs> Blue Steel? This is going to be very fast because I put the clock on the scene actually, and the 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 whole scene goes for just over like two and a half minutes. Correct. Right. This is a scene where Ron Silver. <laughs> Ron Silver is sort of he's graduated. I to feel be so a, sorry for Ron. Every Silver time today. he says his name, he laughs. I mean, Herschel no, just it's, starts it's cracking up. It's because we've unloaded on him the whole episode. No, we, you have for the like, most part. We don't like his beard, hey. but you hate him. <laughs> I didn't ask him to roll around in the forest in the leaves. Okay, that's Catherine Bigelow. That's on Catherine Bigelow or him or him. I don't know. Okay, here's the thing. So the scene that I've chosen is where Ron Silver is walking down almost like a subway uh, area, and he comes across a sex worker, and she says, "Are you looking for? Uh, are you looking for company?" Okay. Now he he picks her up, and we now he has graduated to being a full-blown sociopath. He's a psychopath. He's killed a couple of people, and so we kind of know where this is going. Catherine Bigelow is very successful throughout this film in capturing the 1980s, 90s New York. So kudos to her for that because that's a key. Concept, I think, in the cop films of of the period. From here, we've got a, a, an incredibly hard cut to Silver, where he's he's making kind of Francis Dolite sounds out of Manhunter, like sexual sounds, kind of uh, subversive sounds, which are quite confronting. And then you show up on 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 Ron Silver's back. He's he's taking his shirt off and he's got his arms out. Then we get Silver leaning down to pick up. Uh, like something of a, a, I guess, a shawl that she might have been wearing. It's covered in blood, so it's like a rag covered in blood that he picks up. And I think it's important that he picks it up, you know, from the ground, from between his legs. He, and he, he holds it up to his face and he just starts, in a way, massaging himself mm, yeah. with this rag of blood. Yeah. Um, the blood's running all down his face and we get a close-up of silver covered in blood. Now, to me, it really did reference uh, like Carrie, the opening scene of Carrie the, oh, in, the, in the De Palma movie. Of that, but that's uh-huh. very um, so very, very much referenced that. I've been doing a bit of reading into it, but well, I should say I, I thought of that before the reading. Just, just want to be, <laughs> sure, absolutely, buddy, want to be sure. absolutely clear on that. We would never have thought otherwise. <laughs> but um, it, to me, it is an interesting scene. Now, does it fit the entire narrative and sequence of the movie. I don't quite know but how. What do you reckon's going on in the scene? Like, because it's, it's so a, excessive, it has to have a lot of symbolic content. I don't it's, know. it's a very unique scene. It? It's something yeah. we haven't seen before. Uh, you know what? It remi- what else it reminds? Like. Power of the Dog when he's sniffing that the fabric that belongs to ah, his Bronco lover. Henry's thing. Yeah. yeah. So look, I think it's 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 a highly sexualized scene, but it's the use of that object and him covering himself in the blood. Mm. Now, I don't know how. You want to interpret it, what it stands for. It's Ron Silver, you know, moving up the steps of his, his sociop- sociopathy or whatever mm. it is. But it is a very interesting scene. It is. A, it, I mean, it looks I, amazing. Okay. On the one hand, it's like, okay, he's going further into the realm of nuttiness, right? I'm going to rub blood all over myself. But I think you mentioned this before. Sure, this maybe there's a sense of like menstrual blood, mm. right? But so for I, sure. I, you know, and, and again, this is a film that is about ostensibly the plight of a woman, right? But it's and also this, is, this guy is the predator. Well, the victim is a sex worker, so yeah. she uses right. So that's so, okay. So so I think that's all intentional. And and to me, it's a, a sequence of the film that really achieves quite quite a high quality. 
Yeah. It's just that when you move on, there's it, a strange it loses like, it a bit. ambiguity in the relationship between sex and violence in this movie. Because mm. often you get in movies like, say, Silence or Manhunter, it makes it much more concrete. Like you can go, okay, there's a there's a relation here between a kind of repressed sexuality and the explosion of violence, and you know the violence is in relation to the repression of a kind of sexuality. In this movie, it's a little bit unclear. Like, so what in what is he doing, right? So on the one hand, we've got him on, as a stockbroker. Big trope, stockbrokers, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of lovely stockbrokers, but big trope of the <laughs> mid-1980s, he's the stockbroker. I'm happy to say there isn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. You know, we come out of Wall Street. Well, Wolf of Wall Street. We've, yeah, there, Wolf, there you go. Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street, we got uh, American Psycho. So we got this whole world of stockbrokers are like psychopaths, right? Um, so, they, they, so she uses that trope. But then he's also got this interesting relationship to the feminine, like the menstrual blood. Which seems to me like when you said, okay, that's definitely there. So, so there's a strange ambiguity, and I quite like that because it kind of pushes you as a spectator into a strange place, right? How, but then also just visually, it's it's very striking. Yeah, it's very strange striking. To look Look, it's like Catherine yeah. Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow is worth watching just for the way she chooses mm. to present. I love the way film. she uses light and color, mm. just in almost in every movie. I mean, some of the movies I'm not, I don't really like The Hurt Locker. I think some of her movies are very conservative American uh, political vehicles, and, I, and I'm troubled by some of that. But I will say stylistically, she uses color um, and light just amazingly. So, look, a great scene. I think yeah, great a really scene. scene. Just Ron Silver being Ron Silver there. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Mise en scène. Bruce, what have you chosen for your mise en scène? There are two great bloodbaths in Scorsese, in the pantheon of Scorsese. The first is Taxi Driver. The second is In the Departed. And nothing prepared me for, I, you know, like all Scorsese films, I stay away from reviews. I stay away from any commentary. Because for me, they're such special events, right? I came to that scene, number one, so we've come to 134 and Wash. I love that kind of the, the, the address where it's all going to go down. Manashin has been thrown off the building in one of the most stunning, visceral things you can ever see, right? The, they meet later when Leo is accusing Matt Damon, top of the building. Leo is completely exonerated by saying, I don't care what you do to me, I'm going to arrest you. Mm. So at that moment, the good and the evil are perfectly separated. And you kind of think... Are we going to move to like a pretty trite closing? And then to go down the... And so the sequence commences. There's so many great elevator scenes in movies. And you just got to look at the Palmer, right, for that. Where he goes back to elevators a lot. There's something about the elevator that gives you a way into what is seen and what can't be seen. Especially if you do lots of reverse shots. Because doors can open the, and close, The right? camera on the, on, the, on the doorway yeah. uh, that is, doesn't open... Yes. Is just stunning, right? Scary. It's um, awful. It's coming in down. This movie. Leo's got Matt Damon. It's over, and Matt Damon you know, says, "Just shoot me!" Like it's, and he's, and he's, he's tearing up, and you don't know what's going on yet. And then the guy just shoots Leo. And I was in the cinema, and there was a an audible just gasp. Mm. No one could believe that Leo just got shot in the head. And what we proceed then is wide shot, Leo's body. We get a cut. Do you remember, like, what's the biggest memory you've got of that cut? Cut to the door closing as Leo's head? Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. And it was just, how, like, it's like Scorsese wants to turn the screw even more. We've been with this guy and you're going to, like, abuse his body as well in death, right? And then we get, the bodies are laying and the black guy comes out and Matt Damon shoots him. And my favourite moment is when we go to a wide shot 
of the dead bodies, and this is what I'm describing as the bloodbath, because Matt Damon now picks up the gun. We're low angle, so you get that. You know, this is a very common thing in Scorsese. It's really big in De Palma, if you watch The Untouchables or something. You shoot low angle and wide because it gives you such a sense of like a voyeuristic view of the world. Like I'm looking into something that's really bad here. And the cop's standing up, Matt Damien pulls his gun out, shoots his head, the body flies over that way and get a spurt of blood, and then all the bodies fall, and Damien just walks off. And for me, at the end of that in the cinema, I was like breathless with talk about a master with framing and cutting. Down the lift, cut, the door hitting Leo's body, and then the bloodbath scene. And he had only done it one time as, you know, in the way that it referenced, I think, the bloodbath in Taxi Driver. So it's like Scorsese, for everyone who said, oh, this isn't true Scorsese, it's just a cop movie, this is as pure as Scorsese gets in that sequence. What I love about that scene is one person getting shot, then the next person getting shot, the next person. Yeah. And it's almost overwhelming because it's an assault on your senses. Yes, completely. And that that is that's quite confronting mm. because what but he never is, loses the handle on style, right? This is a hypers even the low angle shot. That's a style shot. No one sh you should be shooting at eye level, right? But he does he shoots deliberate low angle and wide. It also sets a wonderful foreshadow for the very final scene of Digham killing yes. um, Matt Damon because at that point when everyone has been killed really and Damon appears to be master of the universe, you don't know what how this can be wrapped up. Because yeah. Scorsese, especially with Scorsese, he can wrap it up any way he wants to wrap it up. Like the the, the bad guy can win in the end in a mm. Scorsese movie. So it does foreshadow for the end as well. So I love I do love that sequence. Mm. Just, I, yeah. It 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 came as a massive. Did you guys like uh, Mark Wahlberg being the kind of avenging angel mm -hmm. at the end? Yeah. I love that. Right. Some people don't like it and go, oh, that's kind of silly. But you know because it's Dingham. It's like this guy acts like a lunatic and now. But I thought there was something so solemn in that. But also love the fact that he's got he his, kills the his, man he, who killed his he, father. He's not leaving any fibers behind because he's got <laughs> yeah. the stuff covering yeah. his shoes. And when Matt Damon goes, oh okay, okay, yeah. And yes, yeah, so, so to me it was a. Uh, I yeah. like the ending. All right, let me ask you this. I'm, I think I know the answer. Which one do you yeah. prefer out of these two films? <laughs> <laughs> okay, The oh, Departed. Poor Ron <laughs> poor, okay. I, I, I think The Departed is much, much better than Blue Steel. Um, I, I think Blue Steel was an interesting watch, something I had oh, no, not No, I still expected. think it's interesting. And I, I think think still think it's seeing. an important movie. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons we did it was because all cop movies were about men. Mm. Catherine yeah. Bigelow was going, I'm going to make a cop movie about women. That was like unheard of. I can't. Cagney and Lacey was probably a massive. I was going to talk about Cagney and Lacey yeah, yeah. previously because you that's really that, important. No, I never it's watched great it. Show, One thing show. I'm going to say really quickly in response to something you said before, Bruce. You said Departed. You got French Connection and that. See, that's where I have a quibble mm. because for me, Departed is in French Connection. Yeah. Like French Connection is at the top. All right. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to challenge you that later in December because next week is our final episode for yeah. this season. It's been then, an amazing season. Then we've got four very big specials planned throughout December, including a Christmas one, but also some best <laughs> ofs. So look out for that. Um, but for now, that's it for our Cops and Robbers episode. We're throwing a book at it. <laughs> next week, we're wrapping up our second season with the greatest pairing of films that you ever are likely to witness one film blew audiences away just as World War II was breaking out, and the other did exactly the same thing 60 years later. Both films feature a protagonist who enters a topsy-turvy reality and discover that they have the power to influence the world around them for the better. Yes, it's time to take the red pill and follow the yellow brick road as we take on Victor Fleming's The Wizard of Oz 
versus the Wachowskis, The Matrix. I love that pairing so much. It's so One, I love both those movies are just touchstone movies. It's one of those things, we're talking about it before, obviously before we recorded, mm. and it's a pairing. I have no idea where this well, is going to go. Well, let's save it for the podcast and make sure uh, we don't talk about it much. Um, Oz is available on Binge, Apple TV and YouTube, and The Matrix is available in Australia on Stan or Prime Video YouTube. Or simply follow The White Rabbit if you see it. <laughs> I thought Borat was going to be our best episode ever, but I think that next week we could have a new contender. I'm so excited. And can I say, I, mm. I, I spent years on that movie when I was doing a PhD, so I'm so excited to talk to the You spent years on The Wizard of Oz? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I had done a lot of work on the Wizard of Oz as well. Searching for a brain. <laughs> All right. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen as it will help other people to find us. And that's what we need. We want people to listen. We're also on Instagram at Film versus Film Podcast. Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Herschel Isaacs. I've been Bruce Isaacs. Join us next time for Film versus Film. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Film.